0: Welcome back to It's Sports Stupid. I'm Maggie Gray alongside Richard Deitch. Richard, we made it to episode two. What That's f- got to be scalp for something.
1: I think I've, mostly because I think the bosses are on vacation.
0: <laughs> no, one's actually listened to the first episode of the podcast. We're back for another episode. Uh, Richard and I, of course, will be hosting every single week. We're going to talk a little bit today about the NBA finals. We'll talk about the Golden State Warriors winning a title. We're also going to speak with Kent Babb. He's a Washington Post reporter who also wrote an unauthorized biography about Allen Iverson called Not a Game. We'll discuss Iverson's fall from grace, how his alcohol abuse and instances of domestic violence have affected his life and his relationship with his wife and children. We'll also get a little into the Major League Baseball hacking scandal and what the fallout could be from that, and then we'll finish it off with our stupid question of the week. This is when Richard and I take on something that's totally out of the sports realm, um, and we will finish off the show with a little bit that, of that. that. Richard, that, how you one, that feeling one's,
1: one's going to get us fired. That right. one
0: could get us fired. Uh, last week, I think we took down our own company's um, award, <laughs> Sportsman. Yeah, we'll try not to disparage anything uh, today. So let's start off with the NBA Finals, Richard. The Golden State Warriors have now won the title. Um, do you see this as a start of a long run for the Warriors? Do you get the sense that now the balance of power has shifted to Oakland, California?
1: Meg, you're so formal with this, Richard. Now, what do you think? It's it's like we're Jim Nance and uh, Phil Simms in the booth.
0: It's called being professional.
1: You are. I want wait, to try it. Right, that is what you are. Um, I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. I, in terms of like being in like a dynastic team, they definitely have the pieces. They're, you know, Curry and Thompson are young. Looks like Draymond Green's gonna be back. You know, I know that's contractual and stuff, but Restric-
0: he, restricted free. AIDS. Restricted, free,
1: yeah, but he should be back. I mean, you know, the 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 bench is deep. I don't know do you know what Iguodala's contract status is? He's I think? still in
0: for a few more okay, years. So He's like, one of the highest paid players on the team. He right. makes about eleven million dollars. So the a pieces
1: year. the clearly they're young and the pieces are in place. Now the counter would be the West is tough, of course, um, and you would you would think that if Kevin Durant is back healthy, Oklahoma City is an absolute title contender. Clippers, who knows what's gonna happen with Lance Stevenson, but they're I think I mean they're a contender. I still think the Spurs have probably one last run in. Them. I would agree with you. So I think the West is still much tougher, but yeah, I mean I think they have all the ingredients to be a dynasty. But I would say this: the more interesting story to me are, are the Cavs, yeah. for the obvious reasons. You didn't have Kevin Love. You didn't have Kyrie Irving. So you, you still, as you head into next season, with, let's say, if Mozgov is back and some of the more, you know, then let's say J.R. Smith and strumpet really become only bench players. You kind of don't know what that team, like that team is fascinating because if it works, it's a finals contender. If Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving, LeBron don't work. Yeah. You know, you also have some decisions with Tristan Thompson like that. They're much more interesting to me than the team that won the title.
0: Tristan Thompson will definitely come back. He and LeBron are the same agent. They're going to get that worked out, no doubt about it. I, I have no doubt about that. Kevin Love is the real X Factor. Whether or not he decides he wants to go to L.A., if he wants to go to Boston, if he wants to go somewhere where he can be the main guy, what would you do- I'll, I'll,
1: I'll 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 ask you right now. Yeah. If you were the Cavs and you had to make a decision, would you sign him for the long term or would you market that money, let's say, to Tristan Thompson and figure something else out?
0: No, I'd sign him for the long term. You obviously need something here. You're so close. You're so close. You made it to Game 6 of the NBA Finals with LeBron and a bunch of nobodies. Yeah, with a bunch (laughs) of New York Knicks and some other bad guys. So, no, you made it so far. The iron is hot right now. What I wonder is, you look at what happened with Golden State. For as good of a team as they were last year, I do believe that the coaching change was a factor in them finally getting over the hump, along with the fact Definitely. that a lot of players in the Western Conference were injured, and this was the one team that was healthy all the way down the stretch. They led wire to wire, let's be honest, this entire NBA season. But I think the coaching change helped for whatever Steve Kerr did, whether it was the uh, adjustments that he made throughout the game, bringing Iguadala, who did not start it all season long as a starter in the finals, all this well-worn stuff we've already talked about a lot, but I think it was more of a culture shift, too. Uh, For some reason, I think what Mark Jackson wasn't getting through to the players in a way that Steve Kerr was able to touch something and get the most out of them, I think that may be the case with the Cavaliers. I think they may be close. I'm not sure if Blatt's the guy who's going to get them there. And you hate to judge a guy after one season.
1: Especially when he got to the finals.
0: Especially when he got to the finals. But this was LeBron James' finals, uh, in my opinion. I mean, we have to do our due diligence here and give a lot of love to the Golden State Warriors, and that's all well and good. But this entire league right now is about LeBron James. The finals were no different. That's
1: interesting, and I don't think it's crazy. I I think if you're the Cavs, you have to bring David Blatt back just based on the fact that he got you two games away from winning. That said... It would not surprise me by any stretch if 30 games into next year, let's say the Cavs are sitting That's at 18 messy, and 12. That's messy,
0: That's messy. I
1: wouldn't be surprised. To make
0: a switch midstream. And think about it, LeBron but, is— But Maggie, you were— The Cavaliers a, have done this with Mike Brown. They don't want to do that again. I
1: understand, that, but I, I mean, I think we both concur. Or maybe I don't even know if you concur. I would be. I honestly would be stunned if they made a change in the offseason after the guy brought them to the finals. I'm not even saying you're not wrong. Right. There probably is a better coach for them. I, I I would just, I mean, maybe it'll happen. That would be a pretty stunning move to me.
0: Well, let's be honest. It's going to be whatever LeBron wants. He's going to be the one who's going to make this decision. Um, of course, LeBron is one of the most interesting players to talk about now. Another interesting player who hasn't taken the court in several years, but still is able to garner so much news and headlines and interest is Allen Iverson. And Kent Babb, who is a reporter for the Washington Post, has written an unauthorized biography of Allen Iverson called Not a Game. He goes very deep into Allen Iverson's personal life. He has extensive conversations with Allen Iverson's wife and other people around AI. And we're so pleased to welcome Kent Babb to It's Sports Stupid. Kent, Maggie Gray, Richard Deitch, thank you so much for a few minutes today.
2: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Ken, I gotta say, reading this biography of, Al- of Allen Iverson is one of the more depressing things I've ever read in my life, because it just goes and paints the picture of just how far Iverson has fallen from the star that we all remember and the league MVP. Um, I just gotta ask this one, and I'm not gonna beat around the bush. Is Allen Iverson an alcoholic?
2: Well, I guess that's pretty complicated. I mean, I'm I'm not an alcohol substance abuse expert. I mean, I, I think you know, based on the people who do professionally to, uh, evaluate people like that, I guess he qualifies as an abuser, but not dependent. And so, I mean, he has an alcohol problem. I'll put it like that. I mean, it, and you're right. I mean, it's pretty depressing to read about, and very depressing to write about because, like, a lot of people I grew up really kind of admiring what Iverson could do on the basketball court, and you know, to see that. He's this occasionally really bad guy, occasionally this monster that <laughs> drinks way too much and almost has no control over what he's doing. Or if he does have control over it, maybe that's worse. Uh, it's pretty depressing. I mean, there's, there's a really dark side to this person, I think, who brought a lot of joy to people's lives and, you know, for a long time. And so it's, it, there was some pretty bad stuff, uh, uncovered. And, and really the challenge was trying to make him a likable character because with that in mind, that's pretty tough.
0: I can understand why it seems like Tawana Iverson, Alan's wife, is someone who you spoke with extensively throughout the book. And you say Alan can be a monster. Some of the pictures that that she is painting are very unflattering. And I'm wondering, nowadays, domestic violence has become such a huge issue in sports and society. And I wonder if AI and Tawana through their issues now, how differently would the public view Alan Iverson?
2: I think just in general, Iverson would have been a very different person and, and viewed very differently now, you know, just because he, he came up at a time where we didn't have iPhones, and, you know, he could go out and, you know, do all kind of crazy stuff, stay out, stay out till 5 a.m., and nobody really knew. I mean, I, I think just things that I, I think can be sold as comical, uh, and growing the legend back then of him like parking in a, in a handicapped spot at the PGA Fridays, I mean, that looks pretty bad now. I mean, especially if it's captured in real time. And so, you know, the the infamous two two thousand two uh, incident where you know he sort of chased Tawana around Philadelphia with a with a gun and threatened to kill her and things like that. And you know that went on for the better part of a month. And I just think that would have changed the narrative of Alan Iverson had that gone on right now, just because. You know, you had to wait until the next morning at that time. It's hard to believe it's only been 13 years ago, but, you know, you had to wait until the next morning to find out what happened, if anything happened. And, you know, you've got sort of traditional media. And, you know, I think now that story would be changing. People would be camped out outside of his house, outside of the courthouse, all of this, just for minute-by-minute updates from something like that. I think it was a real nationwide scandal, but I think for the most part was confined in Philadelphia. And, you know, frankly, just... Since the book came out, I'm a little surprised that more of the domestic abuse stuff hasn't gotten more attention. I mean, there's been an awful lot of attention. I've been asked, you know, a hundred times about this, you know, was he drinking during the practice rant thing? And I'm, I think, again, that can sort of be sold as kind of funny, kind of growing the legend. It's really not funny. I mean, especially among people who know Iverson, they don't think that's funny at all because they, you know, they knew that he was drinking that day. But there's some, you know, a lot of stuff, the stuff that's in the book, I think can be looked back on as warning signs. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. But, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm a little surprised, at least externally, that hasn't gotten more attention, uh, just because that, I think that's the thing that changed my opinion the most on Iverson. That wasn't partially funny or, you know, part of him as a character. That's just straight-up bad.
1: Ken, two for me. First, now in terms of evaluating this, how would you judge the coverage of Allen Iverson by the Philadelphia media when he was playing in Philadelphia?
2: Um, that's tough, I think, just because, again, I think I'm used to things now. And, you know, it was a very traditional old-school media back then where you've got a couple of newspapers, a few TV stations, a few radios, and that bit. And, you know, I, I think it would be different. And I do think that largely it was a a basketball story, you know, And, and even during, you know, the sort of the dark times where a lot of people knew what was going on. A lot of people knew that he and Tawana had a really rough relationship, and, you know, the cops came out quite a bit and things like that, and even during that time where, you know, that month did pass, you know, there was still sort of this feeling that maybe he was being protected a little bit, and, I definitely don't think that go, that can pass now. I don't think you can get away with that now. And, you know, looking back 13, 15 years, and uh, in a lot of ways, especially hometown media, played ball with superstar athletes. And, and I get it. I understand why that is. But I just don't think that goes anymore. And so it wasn't a secret in Philadelphia that, that he was drinking that day on the practice rant. And so, I, you know, I've... Heard a few people talking about, you know, how come that never got out before, because a lot of people knew it, and, you know, my new friend Stephen A. Smith, you know, he he's really the first person to say anything that, that even resembles that he wasn't drinking that day. I mean, universally, people said that. So, if that many people knew, I just kind of wonder, and maybe it did get out, maybe there were rumors about that before, you know, I but I never heard it, you know, it's until Larry Brown brought it up to me about a year and a half ago, I never heard that, and so, you know, maybe it was a kind of a poorly kept secret in Philadelphia. I just don't know. But, I, yeah, to talk about what Maggie asked, I just don't think that, you know, legend of Alan Iverson is the same if, if that takes place in 2014, 2015, thereabouts.
1: And on that end, obviously, as most certainly people in the media know, Stephen A. Smith is very, very close with Allen Iverson, has been so for a long time. Ken, I want to ask you about biography. And when you do um, a biography of someone, you you have to live with that person either literally or figuratively and you have to marinate in that person's life from reading your book it's very clear that as you said earlier it's tough to find places where you you want to root for Allen Iverson obviously on the court what he did you know he's a hall of fame player i think we all know that but the book itself it he's a he's a tough guy to root for after you read all that how was it for you to marinate with a subject that you personally may not particularly have liked, and you have to live with the subject, at least as a writer, for more than a year.
2: Yeah, and I went back and forth with him. I mean, I think, you know, I had 700 pages of sworn statements and court documents and public records and all that, and that really colored the the negative stuff. You know, and I had, you know, sort of the way I would say it to Friends is, you know, this book was going to be up as sort of good Iverson versus bad Iverson. You know, the chapters sort of alternate. You know, there's jumping around in time. And uh, part of it, I think the first part of the book is meant to be, you know, sort of show these two very extreme sides of Iverson. On, on the one hand, he's doing something extraordinary and going from the, just the absolute depths of poverty. And, you know, that you see that he reaches the NBA mountaintop. And then, oh, by the way, you know, later on, here's what he did with it. You know, and I, I staggered those uh, purposely, just, you know, here's a chapter that ends with him on the cusp of making a lot of money and poverty is no longer going to be an issue for him and he's finally made it. And the very next thing is, oh, well, he may be broke now. And so 20 years into the future, you know, which is now the present, you know, he's having money problems, he's, uh, you know, he's borrowing money from teammates, things like that. But, uh, again, one of the challenges for me to make this, I think, I could possibly make it was to try to make him a sympathetic or at least you know kind of identifiable character and that was tough I mean because on one hand I don't know how many I don't know if that many people think he's sympathetic or identifiable in a lot of ways I think the people who care about him are split some of them think they shouldn't say anything about him at all because they assume everything is going to be critical and you know in some ways I guess I understand that and I address that late in the book just that I, I think that that's that's their opinion of them doing him a solid. And I think from that universe where, you know, how he grew up, you know, that's just, it's just different. And so though I disagree with it as a journalist, I can, I can at least sort of way understand it because they think they're doing a favor for him by just keeping quiet. But, you know, at least the way I put it, or at least the way that I thought about it, I didn't think they were doing him a favor. It was, it was extraordinarily hard to find good positive, You know, here's, alan iverson in the community here's the caring husband father friend teammate things like that that was that was tough uh for me and you know honestly this about this time last summer when i was in the middle of writing it uh, i wondered if i was being fair to him you know i wondered if it was being you know, if i was being too one-sided it's this, this just going to be you know this you know axe job and i'm just like crushing him and all this and you know i i had tried and tried to try to make it make him as understandable as, as humanly possible and, and there was a time where i was like you know i just don't know if i'm i'm not, I'm not balancing this enough and then you know I, I searched his uh his name one day in twitter and that's when i found out that he's this group of 12 and 13 year old kids and you know that's one of those you know I, I stopped i think i stopped caring as much i tried to make it as balanced as possible but at least in my mind you know I, people ask me if i think he's a good guy or a bad guy that was sort of the tipping point for me, because even when I thought I was not being as fair to him as I should be or could be, he does something really bad, and so I, I do think in a lot of ways the bad Iverson wins out, wins out, and, you know, it was tough, you know, I didn't like him a lot of the days, but some days I liked him a lot.
0: Sorry, Ken, your phone just dipped out right when you said something about the 12- and 13-year-olds. What, what happened with that when you checked it on Twitter?
2: Yeah, I, I searched his name on Twitter one morning. I, I would do that periodically just to sort of see if he was in the news and see what was happening. And just one weekend I searched his name, and there was this dad down in Georgia just bitching directly at him. And I tracked down the dad, and I was like, hey, what's this about? And uh, he had Iverson had his youth camp for, like, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids or whatever. And, you know, this dad who paid for his son to, to go to this thing, he said that Iverson no-showed it for four days. And so... You know, this whole thing where you paid like $250 and the counselors were all saying, hey, bring your stuff, you know, he'll be here tomorrow, we promise, he'll autograph it, you know, just be here smiling, and then turn off, he's not there. And, you know, as it turned out, he spent the weekend at a hotel bar in Virginia. So it's not like yet an emergency. But anyway, that was just, that was sort of my tipping point. If people ask me, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? that was sort of where i tipped the scales and i think there's probably a little bit more bad than good in
0: there. For all the negative stuff that's highlighted in the book, i found that the one point where i where i found i felt sympathetic towards Alan Iverson was talking about his upbringing and talking about his mother who sent him to a drug house when he was only 12 years old to go and buy drugs for her and her friends. And i'd like to know your thoughts on what you think the biggest scar Alan had from his childhood, what's the thing that he carries with him the most from that time where you said he lived in abject poverty, his mom was clearly neglecting him and his two sisters, and he was left to fend for himself.
2: Yeah, and I think you just hit it with with that last point, is he depended largely on himself, and, you know, that that's part of what's so great and what's terrible about him, and it's the fact that he learned the hard way, maybe the hardest way, to just rely only on it himself and this very small group of friends that, that all came up together and kind of everybody else in the world be damned. And, you know, he stopped caring about what other people thought. He stopped caring about rules and boundaries. And, you know, he, he sort of developed his own standard of what was right and what was, you know, kind of the way out. And, you know, they, they all made a promise that, you know, if one makes it out, they all make it out. But the problem is, as he got older... And the demands and the responsibilities changed. And, you know, this goes to the bowling alley incident when he was in prison. He just didn't listen to people who I think had his best interests in heart. I mean, he, this goes to John Thompson and Larry Brown. I mean, he, he just he didn't trust anybody besides himself in that. You know, he calls him his first day friend. And you know, sadly, and maybe this is one of the things that I felt bad for him on, well, a lot of those first day frames kind of screwed him. I mean, one of the guys, you know, which I think was a real crossroads, you know, he, he lost him to a murder. you know, that can't be helped, but, you know, I definitely think that changed Iverson. A different guy tried to sue him, you know, for rights to coming up with a nickname, The Answer, and yet another person who was one of the best men in his wedding, so that's how close they were, tried to shake him down for money or else he would release damaging information, so... You know, these are people that, this is where I think his world just got completely shaken, is because he depended on this very small group. You know, there were four or five of them, and of everybody in the world, there are four or five people you can trust. Well, one of them is gone, and two of them try to stab you in the back. And so I just think that it sent him into a complete tailspin, because, you know, a lot of people grow up poor. A lot of people adjust their standards based on that, and based on kind of this, you know, they they got to get out. Thing I mean that's sort of the story of a lot of athletes and people who were successful anyway. But he never outgrew it. I mean he you know I've put it several times this way that you know kind of this ignoring the rules thing that created him is also the same thing that crushed him. You know he he never listened to anybody which was great until he was about twenty or twenty one and you know he still stopped listening to people and they were trying to get him to stop spending money. I mean he, he fired. His first agent, David Falk. He stripped two attorneys of their ability to take care of his finances. He didn't want to hear it, and that's cool, but it's also tragic.
1: Ken, one last one for me, and it's you know you're going to have to do a little bit of speculation because we obviously don't know the answer to this. But as Allen Iverson heads into his forties, where do you think he goes, and can he sort of turn it around and figure out a way to? Um, make money on his name and his name certainly still carries a lot of marketing abilities or does this guy sort of continue to spiral in terms of not being able to figure out what is left for him after basketball and continues to go down the low path you know you you probably have studied him now at this point as much as any human being alive what is your sense of where the next part of his story goes?
2: Well, this is a long time, you know. But I think the next 15 years are, you know, going to define his life because that's the distance between when he gets whatever is left of that Reebok trust, you know. So it's either 16 million or 32 million, depending on how how good of terms he he is he's on with Tawana, uh, his ex, because you know she largely controls all of his finances. I mean, uh, the divorce is set up in such a way that you know every dollar he makes for media and appearances and you know a book deal or whatever she gets 25 cents and the kids get 25 cents of every dollar so half of every dollar is not Iverson's for the rest of his life if that's how it goes and you know like it's much easier I think for me to convince myself that he's in trouble but I don't want to think that you know because I do think there's hope And I think that's sort of the, the good and bad with that one Iverson there's always hope and you can't Turn loose of him. And I think guys like Larry Brown and Pat Croce and Aaron McKee would, you know, maybe in some ways been happier if they would just been like, you know what, I'm done with Allen Iverson. This part of my life is over. Goodbye. Good luck. But that's just not the way he is. I mean, you, you there's enough of that good that you can't give up on him. And, you know, in a weird way, like there's kind of that with me. I mean, because, you know, I hear now that he's back on decent terms with Tawana. He sees his kids occasionally. And, and I hope that's true. I mean, I don't hope bad stuff for this guy i mean he's uh, i now know him as a person and not a superstar and so i hope he gets his drinking under control but i think as we move forward and he kind of inches toward that 55 and the nba pension when he turns 45 which is okay but not amazing money he has to stop drinking so much he has to kind of say goodbye to this nba lifestyle he has to know that he's A regular guy. I mean, he's Superman without his powers now, and he has to get used to being a normal person, and that was unheard of for him, mostly during his 20s, but it's reality now, and that's hard for people like that, I think, and so I think it's possible. It's just a lot more difficult for me to see how he does that than it is for me to see how he stays on the bad side of this thing. I definitely hope he gets better. I hope that he kind of cures these demons but he's got a long way to go. Him saying on Good Morning America a couple of weeks ago that he has no problems in any part of his life, you know, that's a bad sign to me. You know, I, I don't see it that way at all. And, you know, he's going to have to address the fact that he's got some real problems in his life, and, and he's got to just take some baby steps securing each one of those.
0: Yeah, Allen Iverson going from the number one overall pick, the rookie of the year. He was an 11-time All-Star, and of course, the MVP of the 2000-2001 NBA season. Kent Babb wrote the book, Not a Game. It's an unauthorized biography of Allen Iverson. He's also a Washington Post reporter. Kent, congratulations on the book. Some of the details in there are just unreal. The reporting is fantastic. Um, it's definitely a must-read for anyone who's a fan of the NBA in that era. And, uh, and Allen Iverson is just one of those people, for better or for worse, you just can't look away. So, Kent, thank you so much.
2: Guys, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the talk.
0: How about that from Kemp Babb? I mean, fantastic reporting on Allen Iverson, a subject that never gets old. Um, it was it was a fantastic read, if not a very depressing read. And Richard, we're going to move on because when Major League Baseball has a scandal, they really go for it. You have to give them credit for that. This is not deflating footballs. This is the FBI investigating whether executives from the St. Louis Cardinals hacked into the database of the Houston Astros to either poach information, or as our own Tom Verducci has said, to embarrass their former colleague Jeff Luna, who's now the general manager of the Astros, he was formerly with the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, you got the FBI involved. This isn't a joke here. Do you feel like whoever did this, if they did it, all these are allegations— do you think they did it to get information, or do you think they were really trying to embarrass a former colleague?
1: You know, I don't want to speculate, because I don't know, uh, but I agree with you in the sense that this is such a uh, 21st century, a 22nd century <laughs> scandal, right? I mean, espionage, yeah. and, you know, it, uh, like, proprietary information, using information technology. I mean, the old, it's not like... Uh, there's a dude in center field and the catcher is like... like stealing a he's signal? Stealing signals. It's like, it's really bad, And it's
0: not like Rafael Pomero like, pointing at Congress to be right. like, I did not use... But, like, what's up with baseball that every time they have something, either the FBI or Congress or someone has to get involved? I mean, this makes Deflategate look silly, like a couple pounds per square inch. This guy, the FBI is it, it be, looking it, it, into this. It
1: maybe strikes you that's how it's sort of Teflon the NFL is versus uh, versus baseball, but... You know, again, we'll, we will find out more, but I think, to me, if you're reporting it out, you're looking at the relationship between the Astro. Is he a GM or the president of the He's
0: Astros? He's the
1: GM of the okay. Astros. GM of the Astros. His relationship's obviously when he was with the Cardinals, because it's, you know, it does sort of feel like they're clearly were people out to get him, embarrass
0: him. Total bad blood. And from what I have read, there was no love loss. And did I fail to mention in terms of baseball doing big scandals, the Black Sox scandal? It's like if you're going to go big, just throw the whole World Series. Pete Rose, I mean, baseball knows how to do a scandal. I'll give him that. I think that if this ends up being what we think it is, which is, Either low-level executives, or maybe it's all the way up to management. This is a real test here for Rob Manfred, the new commissioner of Major League Baseball, because uh, the owner of the Cardinals, uh, Mr. Dewitt, is one of those. Why do we always
1: call owners by Mister? I hate that. I think it's because they're
0: rich. But, but there's no
1: real. I mean, I. Th- I you I signed I, the checks. I, ha- I hate to interrupt you on this, but yeah. this is a, this has always been a pet peeve of mine. Right? Why do because you are a sports owner? Right? Why do you then automatically get and broadcasters do this all the time? Oh, I know. Automatically the, get the, the minister, athletes do it. That it should why. be Bill, as in Bill DeWitt. It yeah. should be Hank, as in Hank Stein. This is they're not heads of state. They're not presidents. They're not kings. But right? Think about they're, it. They're there. they're well. Generally speaking, they're men and wealthy men. That does not to me. All of a sudden bestow you the title of Mr. It's for everybody. It's Mister. because the
0: athletes do it. It's because Jeter always called him Mr. Steinbrenner. It's because Magic Johnson always called him Dr. Bus. Then Why, is LeBron, why is LeBron
1: James lead? not Mr. James? He, he's
0: making more money than all those guys. <laughs> well, that's a conversation for another. Day. He's Mr. James to you and I, if you ever came in to do this podcast, which is a long shot. <laughs> but I, I I wonder, Richard, if Yes, Maggie. If this becomes one of the great all time scandals, here's what I think.
1: You, are you predicting that? Because that's a big predict. I mean, we've got a lot of scandals in the sports world. This one's pretty good. It could be. It but, could be good. But, I mean, think about the scandals, like, sp- I mean, Spygate level. Yeah. Wow. All right. That's a big I prediction do. by I you. I do.
0: I think so. I think that this is the one thing w- that first came across my mind when I read this scandal, when I saw that a lot of the hacking was coming from some kind of, like, house in Jupiter, Florida, right, where spring a spring house. training right, house. Right. And I just thought to myself, and I very rarely think this way, but I thought to myself, damn, if there was one woman who was in that room, this would have never happened. I swear, one woman, all you need is one woman to come in and say, What are you guys, idiots?
1: So you're, you're saying you guys, that if there, were, if there was a female executive there, there would be somebody reasonable enough to be like, yes. This is stupid. This
0: escalated this to is the like point of test- like pride and, like, and like, I can crack it into his email. <laughs> right. and, you know, just give me 10 minutes. This is something that got out of hand right. because nobody came into the room and just said, What are you guys, morons? Right. You're going to embarrass your the entire organization. you get fired. You're never going to work in baseball again. This is not worth it. Like Emma, Emma Spann, right, who Sports works, works b- here. She's basically the only woman I know, besides maybe Kim Jones, someone like that, who I think could probably work in a Major League Baseball front office. Right, right, they right. know so much. I'm leaving out a lot of women yeah, there. Yeah, that's yeah. not...
1: Allison Footer. There's a lot of yeah, people who've baseball for a long I, time. I'm
0: not saying that. Is, that's no disrespect. These are right, just right. women I know that I talk to. If Emma Span was in that room... <laughs> This would have never happened. She would have said, Guys, you're idiots. What are you crazy? <laughs> it's kind of
1: I think the, the, the my last word on this is can you believe that we are now and it's I understand it in terms of sort of competitiveness, but we've now gotten to a point where people want the Astros secrets.
0: <laughs> that is a great point. The Astros. The laughing stock of the league. But they're not, you know what? They're and I not. Think, they because they have ben Jeff Ri- Lou now.
1: Was it Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated who it, predicted a World Series in tw- by twenty seventeen? Ben
0: wrote the article. Right. The cover he may said be ahead of, your two thousand and seventeen World Series and the Astros. They're much
1: I mean, they have they're much better than I, I certainly I expected. Well,
0: we'll see. The uh the major league baseball season just got a whole lot more interesting, that's for sure. Baseball could use that shot in the arm, whether it's a scandal or not. All right, Richard, we're going to wrap up the show like we will every week with our stupid question of the day. This is something that is outside the realm of sports. Uh, On episode one, we talked about how old is too old to go to a high school prom. You and I disagreed on that. Uh, This week, because we have so many college graduations going on um, all around the country, I want to know who would be your dream commencement speaker. Who would you like to sit in the the crowd and listen to before you leave college and embark on the next chapter of your life?
1: Tommy Lasorda. No, I have no idea. Uh, Have you interviewed
0: Lasorda? (laughs) It would take a while. That's a good question. I was thinking about this. I'm not, I mean, I
1: think if you were, I'm trying to think of myself as a college student, like who would I want today? And I think like people like Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert, like I just think that would be Conan O'Brien. Like that would just be really cool. You would tell people – you'd be able to tell people, hey, they were at my school. It would be pretty good. I don't think you could ever go wrong with the current president of the United States. So whether it's Obama or Bush, you think that's – you're looking at me with a face. You think uh, that's boring? I mean – It's still the president it's the though. the
0: president, sure. What
1: about first lady?
0: <sighs>
1: still, that's a meh for you as well?
0: I mean, it's, you're not thinking outside the box.
1: All right. So I, so I, I'm, I think when it comes to – commencement speakers i find myself being very conventional so that's i'd be curious to see what you take because i'm i'm i feel like i'm much too like head of the supreme court right senator from your state president of the united states famous comedian x
0: right i mean i would go comedian i think that's the best way to go but i think you want like a comedian who's really going to tell you the truth and you got to go chris rock He's the only person, I he think, would who would actually give it to you straight. You know, Chris Rock, the way he talks about marriage and kids and, and things in his life, it's the he can't not tell the truth. You feel like it's almost within him that he has to give it to you. The other thing would be Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I think that she would be fantastic. And if she was in her role, that she's in now on Veep, now that would be an incredible commencement. To
1: How do you feel about, like, let's say if you get an actor and they... Perform the role they're most like. If like you guys, Will
0: Ferrell did Anchorman, or he did. Yeah, Ron Burgundy or Kevin him.
1: Spacey was Frank Underwood. Like you, you, you Frank brought. F- yeah, okay, you brought Kevin Spacey to your uh, to yeah. your graduation, and he's Frank Underwood as opposed to Kevin Spacey. You know, anything
0: would be better than my commencement speech. Mine was uh, I graduated from George Washington University, and um, Andy Rooney, may he rest in peace. <laughs> but Andy Rooney.
1: Was he just unhappy throughout no, the whole he thing? he
0: came because his granddaughter. Was in our journalism school, oh, okay. and so he came in and addressed everybody. And the same year he came to address our class was the year he said that women don't belong on the sidelines Jeez. of games. Classic. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, man, my parents shelled out two hundred grand for this.
1: Wow, that's a lot of. Mine for the, uh, for grad school at Columbia was Katie Kirk, and she was really, really good.
0: I've heard her speak; she's um, amazing.
1: And my undergrad was Mario Cuomo, the late uh, governor of New York, who was an excellent speaker. As well, so again, I had two that were very traditional, very different, but both good. But you know, if you go online and you see some of the great ones, like you know, I've seen Colbert and Stewart. They're real. I mean, I, Kona, actually, I don't, I don't know what's, what, what was. I don't know if it was Harvard or somebody else, but Conan O'Brien Dar- at Dartmouth. That was an unbelievable commencement speech. Okay,
0: if you could give if one piece that. of advice to a college grad who's graduating right now in the year 2015, what would be your one piece of advice?
1: My one piece of advice would be to go forth and go after.
0: Go forth. No, and he said yeah. I'm formal. Yeah. Go forth. Go hither.
1: Yeah. My, it, would young, be, it would be young man. Yeah. <laughs> you old so and so. It would be basically to go after whatever the sort of passion or dream job that you want and, and give yourself a good five to 10 years to try to make it in that field, even if that field is tough. You owe it to yourself to really pursue and go after your dreams especially when you're young. So that would always be my advice, not to necessarily you want to go to an M, you want to get your MBA just cuz you know it's a guaranteed money, or go to law school, but like, you know, if you're an artist or something like that, you owe it to yourself to at least go for it. Maybe you won't make it, but you can at least then wake up one day when you're 60 and like, all right, I made I made my best shot at it.
0: You tried. I'm going to give some more practical advice okay. to What's the that? college grads out there. Number 1, don't get yourself into debt. Don't use the credit card. Do not do that. Don't use it at the bar. Don't use it when your friends come to town to hang out with you. Don't go into debt. My second thing is, no one's going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you. Wow, thanks, Maggie. Once you hit about 25, your hangovers start getting really bad. Someone's got to tell the youth of America this. You can't party like you partied when you were 24, when you are 26, 27, 28. You can't come into the office... Not having slept, looking disheveled, looking like you just got kicked in the head 50 times because you were out doing shots late at night. You can't do it. 25 is the cutoff, and then you got to become an adult.
1: I see uh, Nolan Thomas is writing down in his pad life life lessons. (laughs) According to Maggie, the gospel according to Maggie. Life lessons with Maggie Gray. Practical. Sponsored by Bose. <laughs>
0: it's not sponsored by Budweiser. Okay. Neither is this podcast. Uh, Richard, thank you so much. We want to thank, of course, Kent Babb, who is a Washington Post reporter. has written a fantastic book about Allen Iverson called Not a Game. Suggest you go out there and buy it. It's an amazing read for anyone who loved watching Allen Iverson. Really gives a good portrait of the man himself. I want to thank Elizabeth Newman, our producer. I want to thank Nolan Thomas for pinch-hitting for Elizabeth and helping us out with this podcast. Richard hopefully I will see you next week if the suits don't cut us off